Welcome to the Food Issues Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Revelant, and I'm a journalist, healthcare copywriter, and a mom of two. In every episode, we talk about the challenges around feeding kids and give you practical and realistic solutions that will inspire and empower you to raise healthy eaters. Hi, friends. Welcome to another week of the podcast. We've all heard the phrase, breast is best, but for moms who have low milk supply, pain, or other problems breastfeeding, that may not be the case, and the way to solve it isn't always easy. Moms are told to feed more and pump more. They try supplements, teas, and cookies to increase lactation. They talk to their doctors, lactation consultants, and go to support groups. But for some women, no matter what they do, breastfeeding is painful, and it just doesn't work. There's no fellowship for breastfeeding. There's no agreed upon way to analyze and treat babies and moms um, when it comes to breastfeeding. And so they're kind of left on their own and it, and it ends up boiling down to belief systems instead of anatomy and physiology. That's Dr. Linda Dahl, an ear, nose, and throat doctor and the author of the new book, Better Breastfeeding. Dr. Dahl started her own breastfeeding practice and developed a way to help moms breastfeed without pain. She has treated more than 23,000 babies and moms and has a nearly 90% success rate. We talked about some common breastfeeding myths and the surprising reason many moms aren't able to breastfeed. We also explore where moms can turn for help and what needs to change in the U.S. to better support them. There is so much information in this episode, and I know you're going to love this interview with Dr. Linda Dahl. Well, Dr. Dahl, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about your story and your career path and how you work with clients today or patients today. Well, I grew up in uh, Minot, North Dakota, in this small town in North Dakota. And my parents um, are actually originally from Syria, from Damascus, Syria. How they found their way to that tiny town, I still don't totally understand, but (laughs) that's what happened. Um, And I finished college and... um, moved to Minneapolis for medical school, and then for residency, uh, matched uh, in otolaryngology, which is ear, nose, and throat, in the Bronx in New York. And in my naivete, I thought the Bronx meant uptown. So I was very (laughs) excited (laughs) to show up in the Bronx, and it was very much not like what I was expecting. Um, I mean, I learned a lot. It was was, uh, the extreme opposite of what I had grown up with. And it also taught me a lot about um, social norms, value systems, you know, kind of how we fit in the world, which which really informed the next step of my career, which was um, being hired into a practice on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, which was light years away from the Bronx. Um, And in that practice, um, the practice was um, pediatric ear, nose, and throat doctors, and they wanted to hire a doctor, specifically a woman, because female ENTs are very rare. So they wanted a woman to be part of their practice to see the adults of the children that they normally saw. Um, So that's what I was hired to do. But there was a lot of overflow. And a lot of the overflow um, were babies that had trouble breastfeeding, and they were diagnosed with something called tongue tie, which I had never heard of. Um, but I had just given birth to my daughter. She was six months when I started practicing and I had just failed to breastfeed her. (laughs) So I took a special interest in these babies when I think everyone else was just ignoring them because like I said, my specialty is mostly men. Uh, and they really didn't, I mean, they didn't understand, I think. Um, and I just thought, oh, this is obviously what my daughter had, but everybody missed it. And I missed it because I didn't learn 
in residency. So I just kind of went to work, you know, treating all these babies. And before before I knew it, before we all knew it, I had a huge following of newborns and moms. And I had no idea what was happening. My my bosses were shocked as well. They were like, what are you doing with these babies? And I said, oh, I'm helping them breastfeed. And, and it seemed so clear, you know, the treatments and the protocols uh, that I was using, um, they, the effect of them was so obvious and immediate that I didn't question whether it was right or wrong. It was just so obviously right. Uh, but I had no idea that I was kind of creating a new paradigm to see and treat these babies. Um, and then here we are, what is it? It's 2022. The last two years <laughs> have been uh, kind of a blur. Um, but yeah, I mean, I started in practice in 2003. So I'm almost finishing my, I'm almost at 19 years of practice. Uh, so, and my, you know, my practice has gone through a lot of other changes, but that, but in terms of babies and breastfeeding, that's kind of where it all started. Wonderful. So, you know, we always hear the term breast is best. And unfortunately, I think it continues to be this hot button issue in the U.S. Um, among moms, among everyone else. And so why do you think it it persists and what needs to change in, in how we think about breastfeeding? Yeah, I think if, to really understand why things are the way they are now, you have to look back in history in general, but especially about breastfeeding. Um but if you, so women primarily had to breastfeed up until about the turn of the century and babies were born with midwives at home. So mother, so women kind of dealt with breastfeeding, childbirth, childcare. It was a very sort of, you know, female profession. And then at the turn of the century, when the medical doctor profession, the allopathic medicine profession was being developed, it was all men. And they had a very different perspective on childbirth and breastfeeding. They felt that childbirth was a diseased state. <laughs> Women had to go to the hospital, get medicine. Uh, breastfeeding was was poison for babies. <laughs> um, and it, it really, everything was kind of, you know, went in totally the opposite direction. Um, and this progressed and, you know, allopathic MDs became much more powerful. So by the 70s, um, only about 25% of women were breastfeeding which is crazy low. Um, and, it, you know, there was no, there was no way for midwives to compete against you know, formula, which had been developed and the bottles and you know, the doctors all kind of, you know, saying the opposite thing. So there was a group of women um, in the suburbs of Chicago, seven women who had 55 babies <laughs> between them. Um, and they uh, kind of gathered all their information about breastfeeding and they put it into a compendium called The Woman, the Art of Breastfeeding, which is still around today. Uh, and they uh, were the founders of the La Leche League. So they really did a lot to salvage what would have been lost in breastfeeding. Um, but they also came at it from a perspective of, you know, it works for us, we can help it work for you. And so there was never, it wasn't, it wasn't looked at, you know, as this is how breastfeeding works. This is what it doesn't work. This is how to assess and diagnose and treat. It was just just breastfeed <laughs> and here's how you do it. And if it doesn't work, try these tricks. And if it still doesn't work, you know, we're not going to pay attention to that. We're just going to keep kind of barreling forward. So, I mean, it was a beautiful, you know, the found, the foundation of breast disease is actually really beautiful and it salvaged breastfeeding. But, you know, as time went on, you know, more and more women want to breastfeed and they're, they're encouraged to breastfeed. There's more and more science telling women how good breastfeeding is. That piece of, you know, the, the piece where you diagnose the mom and the baby, and you, you assess whether or not breastfeeding is even possible, or if an intervention is needing, that piece is just missing. And so now, you know, all of those well-meaning 
you know, sort of cheers of rest is best are wonderful. But if you can't breastfeed, there's very little, you know, there's very little resource for moms to turn to, to get that kind of support. So it almost feels like, you know, they get shamed or, or they get worse. I think they get blamed for, for, um, when breastfeeding fails. Yeah. And I think a lot of those ideas that you spoke about, they persist today. And, you know, if you need help, it, it really, it comes down to whether you have health insurance to cover, um, you know, help in the hospital or you have to pay out of pocket for someone to come to your home. Right. Yeah. I mean, the fact that breastfeeding is carved out of regular medicine is just shocking to me, <laughs> like on every level. So doctors can't assess it. You know, the nurses give you their opinions. I mean, bless the lactation consultants, but a lot of lactation consultants don't even come from a medical background and they may or may not have a state that licenses them. And if there's no license, they can't bill insurance. And so it's cash-based. I mean, it's kind of a crazy situation. If you stand back and take a look at it, it really should be part of, you know, having a baby that you have breastfeeding assessment and breastfeeding, you know, access to breastfeeding support. So it does become, you know, a matter of places like New York, where I live, and the bigger cities have highest per capita number of lactation consultants than anywhere in the world. (laughs) And, and unless you have good insurance or, um, you know, depending on the training of a lactation consultant, you have to pay cash to get that access. Um, with the exception of La Leche, they're, they're usually, you know, pretty low cost or free, but yeah, I mean, it it is a little, it's crazy (laughs) the situation that, that moms and babies are in. And so what does the latest research show about breastfeeding rates in the U S how are we doing? Yeah, so the CDC does an assessment every couple of years, and the most recent one is from November of 2021. And actually, we're doing quite well. Uh, it's gone up from um, the previous um, analysis. So we're up to about 89% of women at least attempting to breastfeed at first, which is amazing. Um, that drops to about uh, close to 60% at three months, but um, by 12 months, we're down to 35%. And there are so many issues, you know, and that actually I should say is breastfeeding at all, not exclusively breastfeeding, which is a whole other discussion. So the U.S. is doing pretty well. I mean, some states like Minnesota, where I went to school, is I think 95% of women try, at least try to breastfeed, which is great. Um, But I think, you know, buried in those statistics, I mean, a, a lot of times when I look up, you know, why are breastfeeding rates, why do they go down? when, you know, as, as the months go on, so much of the research points to women going to work or women not having access to, you know, time for their baby, which I think is unfair (laughs) because Mm -hmm. honestly, if you can breastfeed, you know, a lot of the reason women can't breastfeed is mechanical and it has to do with the baby's anatomy. And if that's set up from the beginning, you can still maintain breastfeeding, whether or not you're at work, because there are a lot of laws in place now and there are places to pump, you know? So I really think that, that the, breastfeeding rates declining have more to do with the ability or inability for the mom and baby to breastfeed. Okay. That's great. And so in what way do you think the U S and the healthcare system is, you know, are failing moms and what do you think needs to change in order to support moms to breastfeed long-term or longer than three months? I think it really, what I was you know mentioning before, I think what the U.S. really needs to do is focus on the mechanics of breastfeeding. So we have you know all of this research um, telling us how great breast milk is and how important it is to breastfeed, and so you know and, and everybody gets it now, right? It's much better to breastfeed <laughs> than to not breastfeed for a, you know 
huge list of reasons. Um, and then there's the encouragement to breastfeed in the hospital where, you know, it's hard because formula companies have a huge impact. Formula is also necessary a lot of times, at least in the beginning. Um, so, but then there's that, you know, that huge chasm in between. Well, what happens if, if a mom does everything she possibly can and her baby still can't breastfeed? I mean, that, that whole evaluation and treatment in a, in a medical setting is missing. You know, there are people who train in other specialties like myself and they try to help with breastfeeding, but there's no fellowship for breastfeeding. There's no agreed upon way to analyze and treat babies and moms um, when it comes to breastfeeding. And so they're kind of left on their own and it, and it ends up boiling down to belief systems instead of anatomy and physiology. It's great. So we're going to take a break and we're going to talk more about the challenges that moms are facing and myths around breastfeeding. If you want mealtimes to be easier and less stressful, getting your kids in the kitchen is one of the best things you can do. I know that it's really encouraged my kids to eat their vegetables and try new foods, and it's given them a ton of confidence in the kitchen. But if you don't know how to cook or you don't like to cook, the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. This course was created by a mom of four and former elementary school teacher, and it's designed to build connection, confidence, and creativity in the kitchen. With Kids Cook Real Food, you'll get more than 30 basic cooking skills, 45 videos, including a ton of bonuses, principal supply and grocery shopping lists, and kid-friendly recipes like Tex-Mex white bean dip and homemade pizza. The course is designed for all kids ages two to teen and has three different skill levels. Your kids will learn how to crack eggs, cook rice, make a salad, and safely use knives, the oven, and appliances. If your kids have food allergies or dietary restrictions, no problem because the course has a ton of substitutions. My kids and I have taken the course and it was so easy to follow along that they made an entire recipe on their own. More than 18,000 families have taken the course and the Wall Street Journal named it the number one cooking class for kids. You can sign up by going to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues. And because you're a listener, you'll get a free lesson. Again, go to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues and sign up. We all know that kids love their snacks, but finding healthy snacks with real food ingredients that are also affordable isn't always easy. That's why I love Thrive Market. Thrive Market is an online membership-based market that makes healthy living easy and affordable. Everything is organic and non-GMO, and members save an average of $32 on every order. My kids really love the skinny dip dark chocolate almonds and Lara bars, especially coconut cream pie. So delicious. Thrive Market also has essential groceries, safe supplements, non-toxic home products, and clean beauty products, plus ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, and more. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash food issues where you can sign up and see my favorite items. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a family in need. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash food issues. So Dr. Dahl, let's talk about the mechanics of breastfeeding and what are those common challenges that you've alluded to uh, that moms face? 
Yeah, the, that's actually the mechanics of breastfeeding, specifically with the baby, are is the most common reason moms and babies can't breastfeed. And so everybody knows um, babies have reflexes and then they have learned behaviors and the same with mom. But for some reason, there's this belief that everything is automatic and it's not. <laughs> so reflexes that the babies have, they have a gape reflex and they also have a suck and swallow reflex, uh, among others. So the first thing they do um, is they smell. Um, they they're have a, their sense of smell is hardwired to smell these kind of oily glands around their mom's nipple called Montgomery glands. They smell the gland, they go to the nipple, and then they open their mouth as wide as they can, and that's called the gape. And that's a reflex, which means they gape no matter what. They don't have to learn to gape or they don't have to you know be a certain size to be able to gape. But very often when babies are born, they can't do a normal gape because um, a gape requires that they unhinge their jaw almost like a snake so that the wide open position is relaxed so they can form a seal on the breast with their lips you know on the areola you know as far deep as they can get it and their lips then won't move but all the moving parts happen inside with the tongue compressing the nipple and pulling it back to the back of the throat and then a vacuum forms in the back of their throat to pull the rest of the milk out and that has to work in concert with the mother uh, because the mother secretes a hormone called oxytocin after the baby is latched on if it feels good, which is important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that oxytocin goes to the little muscle cells around the alveoli where the milk is made and actually squeezes and pushes out the milk. So when everything is working correctly, that's how it has to happen. But very, very often that first step of gaping uh, is missed because the baby can't unhinge the jaw. So they hinge at the jaw, open wide, slide down to the end of the nipple. And then there's, they cause friction on the nipple by, because they're moving back and forth because they can't form a seal. And then everything that kind of falls apart afterwards, I shouldn't say everything, but the vast majority of problems that moms and babies have follow from that. So moms get pain, babies get blisters on their lip. They can't transfer the milk or they swallow too much air. Uh, instead of um, breast milk. And if the baby isn't emptying the breast, then mom can have issues with supply. Or if mom has a ton of milk, then the baby can kind of choke on the milk. So you can see that that one, that very first step, which is a reflex, um, that's the, the key. And if that doesn't happen, what often moms are often told is, oh, you know, just hold your baby's mouth open. That doesn't really work. Or (laughs) your baby's mouth is too small or just squeeze your breast into a little pancake and shove it in there. And just like, no, that's, that's the problem. And there's, and sure there are ways you can, you know, kind of hack your way through that situation. But if you can assess it at least in the beginning and understand what's happening, then make informed choices about what direction you want to go to go, you know, go to next. Do you want to do a procedure or not? Do you want to pump or not? Do you want to, are you even making enough milk? You know, you have to, you have to be able to do that kind of assessment first before you move on to the next step. But often, you know, that first step, which is super obvious to everybody, especially moms who are watching videos of babies with these huge gapes, they're like, my baby doesn't do that. They're like, yeah, just move on to step two, watch the baby on. I'm like, no, (laughs) and that's really the problem. And then you know, a lot of other anatomic um, structures like tongue ties and these terms, you know, there's different terms for tongue ties and lip ties get really, you know, kind of confused in there because um, there are procedures that you can do to help, but you have to understand what you're doing and why and what is an actual tongue tie or not. Yeah. Can you talk through some of that? How do you go about investigating what's actually going on in the baby's mouth? And then what do you do about it? 
Yeah. So I kind of, I look at, I assess the anatomy in the opposite way that most people in the breastfeeding world do. Um, the reason it kind of ended up this way is another story, but, um, I first look at the shape of the baby's head, um, to see if it's well-rounded or more kind of oblonged. And I hate using the term cone head, but, but when babies go head down and their, their head is engaged in the pelvic girdle kind of early in the third trimester, then their head forms to the inside of the pelvic girdle. So it's more kind of longer and oblong because, you know, it has to fit somewhere. And then the, since the baby's head is kind of the biggest part of them, they have to tuck their chin in really tight to be able to fit. And when that happens, the jaw ends up kind of um, developing a little bit further back than otherwise. There's nothing wrong with the jaw, but it just kind of, it's set back just a little bit. And then because of the position of the jaw, it tethers the movement of the tongue and it prevents the tongue from flattening out the roof of the mouth. So the roof of the mouth gets arched as well. Wow. That is fascinating. It's really cool. <laughs> I, no one talks about this. This is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it took, uh, it took me researching what's out there and just kind of learning. It really felt old school trial and error. I mean, I, for a while I was seeing, I mean, 1500 babies a year. And I, and even though, you know, the lactation consulting world were, were very excited about this term posterior tongue tie, they just ran with it and they were giving lectures and, you know, this is what's wrong. And I'm just like, I don't, this is not what's going on. <laughs> posterior tongue tie is not a structure. It's totally made up. Lip tie um, is a diagnosis for the, the tissue that um, remains between the two front teeth when the permanent teeth come in. It's a diagnosis of um, for when children like age nine and above have a gap between their teeth. It's, it, there's no such thing as a lip tie in an infant because every baby has that lip frenulum because it has to hold space for the permanent teeth. I mean, these are all things I know as an ear, nose, and throat doctor. So when I hear the terms posterior tongue tie and lip tie, I cringe. I'm like, that's not real <laughs> at all. Um, but if you think about the position of the jaw, because the tongue is attached to the jaw by the floor of the mouth, if the jaw is pulled back, that's going to tether the movement of the tongue. So when the baby tries to unhinge the jaw, when the jaw drops, it pulls the, the tongue gets pulled down with it. Okay. Right? Yeah. And because there's like a relative overbite, that overhang of the lip over that, you know, the upper, um, the, uh, the maxilla is what it's called. Um, it looks like an overbite that's going to pull the mouth closed. So because of that relative overhang and shifting of the jaw, the baby can't unhinge. But if you cut the normal tissue, that lip frenulum and any kind of frenulum that's under the tongue, because every tongue has a frenulum, if you cut those two, then the baby can unhinge. It releases that tethering. Okay. Wow. So it's sort of an inside out way of looking at it. And and it's hard. I mean, I, I mean, it's really hard to understand or conceptualize it. And I will, I will confess, I started cutting, you know, when I would have babies in my practice that didn't have tongue tie that still couldn't breastfeed and they had all the symptoms of tongue tie, I started cutting underneath the lip. Again, informed consent, telling the parents, this isn't going to hurt, but we can try. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and every single baby latched on. And it took me three years of backwards deduction to figure out what had happened. It was, it was like the answer came before the question. And once I got it, I'm like, this is amazing. You know, New England Journal of Medicine is going to put this on the front cover. It's going to embrace this. This is amazing. And every parent that comes in and sees me, you know, when I talk through it, they're like, yeah, yeah, I don't really get it. But, you know, I'll take a leap of faith, which it always is. 
I do the procedure immediately. They're like, that's crazy. That's crazy. (laughs) The baby's mouth is open. They latch deeper, more deeply. They pull the milk out. So it's really the effect of the procedure informs what was wrong to begin with. So it was all backwards deduction, but, but it's much easier to say, look at that tongue tie, you know, and diagnose, you know, babies with an anatomic issues they don't have. And the reason that's a problem is because if babies have this trouble gaping, the only thing it ma- the only thing it affects is breast breastfeeding primarily sometimes bottle feeding but only for the first year. And so if you decide you don't want your baby to have a procedure and you're going to pump and bottle feed then it it is malpractice to call that baby or diagnose that baby with a tongue tie because then there's the presumption that there're all these other issues that are going to happen when they get older and it just simply isn't true. Okay. Yeah, my I have two daughters and the youngest one. So I had breastfed my first one for a year. And so I knew that breastfeeding didn't hurt. And then when I started within the first day of breastfeeding my little one, there was pain. And the midwife said, yes, she has a tongue tie and you should go see an ENT. And they ended up clipping the frenulum and it was it was just Amazing. hard. Yeah, well, <laughs> hard. well <laughs> yeah, I felt horrible about it because yeah. I wasn't sure if it was actually indicated because they said it was slight and I was torn up about it. But yeah, yes, once it was done, there was no more pain. And so how do you know that it's actually indicated and you're making the right decision? That is an excellent question. And that's the thing. That's the problem with using the word tongue tie and saying that it's slight because like, what (laughs) What Uh are you supposed to do with that? Right. So I, I divide breastfeeding issues up from tongue tie. So tongue tie is a simple diagnosis. You look at the baby's tongue. If the frenulum is 75% or more, you know, present, if it didn't dissolve and it's attaching uh, and tethering the tongue to the floor of the mouth, you need to cut it as soon as possible, as far back as, as anatomically safe, um, for, for every reason, because then the tongue can develop normally because the tongue's a muscle, um, and if you don't release it with a real tongue tie, then there are all these other implications, like the, the palate is arched, they get tightness in their jaw, sometimes they snore, they get TMJ. So there are a lot of reasons to do it. So that's a separate issue. Babies that have trouble gaping, um, if, if you can assess the baby using the anatomy and physiology I just explained, then you can have a real conversation with you. You could say, and I don't know with your daughter if she had real tongue tie or not. You know, I think if you would have heard, oh, it's real tongue tie, you need to cut it, no question. Yeah. That would have made you feel like, oh, I'm making an informed decision. Right. Or if it's or if your baby did not have tongue tie that would cause speech issues or those other issues, and I would have said, This is the anatomy. She can't gape. If we don't release her gape, she's gonna struggle to pull milk out of your breast. You could pump or feed her, then you'd feel better about the choice that you made. You know, it's still hard to do a procedure or not. But if you understand that, you know, your baby's working, you know, it's like sucking milk out of a straw with a hole in it. That's what it's like for a baby to try to nurse when they can't gape and they struggle in in other ways, you know, and if, and if it's hot, if it's painful for you and the baby's not getting milk out, I mean, that's negating the whole point of breastfeeding. So it's not in that instance, breast is not best. (laughs) You have to fix the problem. And then, and when breastfeeding is working perfectly, then it's best. So I mean, I think that's really what I'm most interested in, education and understanding what's actually happening so that moms don't have to take, it's not opinion-based. It's not, well, I think maybe, 
you know, and if, if they keep, if they're told, and I cannot tell you how many moms have come in to see me, you're like, oh, my baby has a lip tie and they're six months and they're not breastfeeding. I'm like, there's no such thing. That's not a diagnosis. And because there are so few people doing the procedures and a lot of the procedures are done by dentists who don't use insurance, nobody is watching this. Nobody is overseeing this. Nobody's monitoring. Nobody's looking at outcomes. Nobody's looking at negative outcomes of lasering babies for no reason. Uh-huh. And it's just, it's just money. It's just a money, it's a money-making horrible, <laughs> you know, racket. And it's so, it breaks my heart because I feel, you know, so responsible having developed so much of this. And, and popularizing it, you know, to see it taken advantage of and used that way is really heartbreaking. Wow. So your book, Better Breastfeeding, recently came out. And as you were researching the book, are there other breastfeeding obstacles that you learned about? Weaning was something I'd never really thought about before. <laughs> um, most of the time, I mean, because I'm usually seeing and treating moms in the beginning uh, when they're struggling, like in the first few months. Um, but yeah, the issues with with weaning are really interesting because there's so much of an emotional uh, connection with nursing and just ways to kind of drop feeds. Um, and I also uh, was impressed with how much um, support there is for moms breastfeeding in the workplace, but they just, nobody tells you. Mm-hmm. It's all out there, but you really have to research it yourself because the businesses are required to have it, but they don't they don't necessarily advertise it. What would you say are the most common myths about breastfeeding that moms kind of buy into? That it's, uh, well, this is my favorite, that it's not supposed to hurt at all, but it hurts a lot. (laughs) (laughs) That's my favorite one. It's not supposed to hurt, but it hurts a lot. That drives me crazy. Um, That cluster feeding is normal and to be expected um, because it really depends on the, the circumstance. So if your baby every night you know, eats for three hours and then passes out, that's not cluster feeding for a growth spurt. That's because they're not getting milk out of you. Um, and another one, um, the one that is is the hardest to kind of explain to the lactation world is that, um, is what is what causes nipple aversion or nipple confusion. Um, uh-huh. So the idea, so remember, remember before I said that the baby is hardwired to smell the substance on the Montgomery glands and go for your breast. So they're hardwired to find your breast. Um, When they latch on or or can't gape and they can't latch on and they try really hard to get the milk out, um, moms are often told to, you know, make sure they breastfeed first and then give them a bottle afterwards because then they won't quote unquote forget the breast. But what that actually does is teaches the baby that the breast doesn't give them milk, but the bottle does. Mm -hmm. So that idea of make sure the baby doesn't forget the breast when you're in pain and bleeding and they're not pulling milk out and then follow it with a bottle is actually antithetical to making sure the baby wants the breast because you're training them away from it. And it's really, that's really hard to overcome. Like it's better to pump and bottle feed and figure out the problem and then bring the baby to the breast because when they don't have a negative um, association with the breast, it's much easier to get them back on. Right. Yeah. So if moms are having problems with breastfeeding, where do they start? Who do they go to, to try to figure out what's going on? That's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The biggest problem. (laughs) Um, Right. I mean, I think it's a combination and I really feel like moms, I mean, the biggest reason I wrote this book is because I want moms to be empowered with this information and these facts so that they can actually teach their, their healthcare providers, because this doesn't exist in 
in our medical books, in our teaching. So, I mean, I think understanding the anatomy and physiology and having a better understanding of what's happening with their body and their baby is the first place to start, honestly. Um, Lactation consultants can be so very helpful. So can doulas and midwives and people who have training in in breastfeeding. But but it's it's really hard to know if the information you're getting is... um, is best for you or not, you know, so you have to kind of find somebody who gels well with you. There are, there are some pediatricians that are more or less baby friendly. Um, and OB-GYNs are the first to admit that they know nothing about lactating breasts, (laughs) but I really wish that would change. I mean, I almost feel like midwives, um, midwives, lactation consultants, baby friendly pediatricians and doulas. And so are you planning to publish your research or or roll out a program to teach providers about this? Yeah, I'm actually working on data entering all of that. I have, we'll see how many I can get in, but I I did research on about a thousand babies from 2015 um, and just showing, um, you know, a lot of what I, you know, explained here. And then that I'm hoping to finish with, you know, by the end of, what is it, almost March, probably, you know, definitely by the end of the year. Um, and, and I would love to do training programs. Um, it's, it's challenging because I'm in solo practice and most research and training programs are done by people in hospitals and institutions. So that makes it challenging, um, to get something set up. Um, but that's, that, that's my dream. I mean, amazing. I would love to be able to train. It's amazing. And for women who can't afford to seek out a lactation consultant in a private setting, um, how, or even in a hospital setting and they have insurance because it is costly, where should they turn to, for help? La Leche is helpful, um, and it's usually low low cost or free. More and more hospitals have um, have but you know, breastfeeding groups while you're in the hospital, and also a place that you can come to after your baby is born when you go home. Um, pediatricians now often um, employ lactation consultants, and if the lactation consultant um, is a nurse practitioner or a nurse or has some medical background, sometimes even doctors will get that certification. They can bill insurance. So there are ways around, you know, the cost of that too. I mean, I think there's also online, there are a lot of apps, um, that can help support you, but it really is hard unless they're there with you. Right. Yeah. They have to see what's going on. Yeah. COVID's COVID's crazy. Like in the beginning of COVID, I was doing house calls for my newborns. I was driving, you know, with the mask. It was crazy. But I mean, it was, they had no, no one to help them. Right. Yeah. Well, Dr. Dahl, this has been a fascinating conversation. We'll definitely link to your book, Better Breastfeeding in the show notes, but tell me where listeners can go to learn more about you and your work. Uh, they can go to my website. It's uh, drlindadahl.com. Uh, and I think everything is on the <laughs> website if you scroll through. Uh, and, the, and the book is available everywhere books are sold. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. There's so much shame and guilt put on moms about if and for how long they're able to breastfeed. So I hope the ideas that Dr. Dahl spoke about open up new conversations among providers and those in the breastfeeding community so that moms can get the support they need. Definitely pick up a copy of her new book, Better Breastfeeding, which I've linked to in the show notes. If you're enjoying food issues, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating so we can reach more people. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode and I'll see you next week.